This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 389. If we want to create the, the sort of world we want to live in, we need to share information freely. We need to realize that somebody else's success does not jeopardize our own. So I've really striven with my books to try to break down and reverse engineer the processes. How can we break out of the endless cycle of feeling rushed, overwhelmed, and perennially behind to create the kind of meaningful lives we all seek? We need to start playing the long game. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. This is the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. If you're going to be successful in your career and in your life, then you've got to be a lifelong learner, and that starts with reading, and that's what this podcast is all about. Today, our guest is my good friend, Dory Clark. She's author of a brand new book out today called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. I'm going to be asking Dory to share about the concept of strategic patience and how to make it work for you why, for many of us, our jam-packed calendars are a prison of our own making, Dory's framework for identifying the goals you should be setting for yourself, and plenty more. Yesterday, Monday, I was checking out Dory's new book on Amazon to see how it was faring with pre-releases and such, and noticed that it was a number one new release. I clicked on that little link, number one new release, below her book. She had the number one slot with her physical book and the number two slot with her Kindle book, but that wasn't all. I instantly recognized another book in the top five, and that's my new book, Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career. And not only is the physical copy at number five, but the audiobook of Read to Lead is at number six. That's in the job hunting and career guides category, by the way. But what a pleasant surprise. I hadn't even thought to check this these last few weeks. So chances are Read to Lead has probably been higher on that list closer to release day than it even is right now. All that to say, thank you. I have you to blame. I have you to thank for making that happen. So appreciate that. If you've purchased a copy, thank you so much. And if you haven't, I hope you'll consider that by going to readtoleadbook.com, where you can even download the introduction and first chapter for free. That's readtoleadbook.com. If you have purchased the book, would you be willing to add your rating and review to the 40 or so that are there now? That would be super helpful as well. But again, thank you for making these first three weeks since the book's released incredibly strong and rewarding. I'll be speaking later this week to a leadership team inside a company you've probably heard of, a company called LinkedIn. They're kicking off year two of their leadership book club with Read to Lead. If you're looking to follow in LinkedIn's footsteps, now's a great time for bulk purchases of the book. Through the end of September, when you order 20 copies or more, you get 50% off. Go to readtoleadbook.com. Choose Baker Publishing as your vendor. And then at checkout, use the discount code READ to LEAD. Again, that's READ to LEADBook.com. Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She's been named one of the top 50 management thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. She was honored as the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards. 
and one of the top 10 communication professionals in the world by Global Gurus. She is a keynote speaker who teaches executive education at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. She's written several books, at least two of which have been featured here on the show previously. And her new book, again, is called The Long Game, How to Be a Short-Term Thinker in a Long-Term World. Excited to have you back, Dory. Welcome once again to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I missed the first book, Reinventing You. That was the first one, right? That was the first one, yeah. I've read it, but it came out, I think, around the time the podcast was launching or maybe slightly before. So I didn't get you on for that one, but I think we've gotten every book since, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, my my virtual summit a couple of years ago was excited to have you on for that. You're somebody who, uh, when you reach out about maybe being on the show, I don't have to know what the title of the book is. I don't have to know what the book is about. I just know it's going to be good. So I just say yes, sight unseen. And then I get the book and I'm not disappointed. I'm like, this is fantastic. I I appreciate your faith and I appreciate your kind (laughs) compliment. Thank you, Jeff. Well, describe your battle over the years with patience and 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 earning this idea of earning success without certainty that that it's actually going to happen this idea of strategic patience i guess yeah absolutely so i was mentioning to you just before we logged on live that my mom is visiting and my my mom always likes to remind me that when i was a little kid i was i was just i was so offended by so many things like i was offended <laughs> i couldn't vote really i was i was irate about that i was offended i couldn't drive uh, i wanted to start a business and you know my mom's like well you need permits and and you have you have to be 21 or whatever it is and and it's a process. I, I was yeah i w- i was just i was just like oh no like i I, cu- I couldn't wait to not be a child i couldn't wait for my life to get started <laughs> and so i mean literally from the earliest days patience has been a big challenge for me and i, I think frankly mm-hmm. for for a lot of uh, a lot of professionals who are highly motivated the same thing is true simultaneously you come to realize as you get older that a lot of the things most of the things that are really worth accomplishing you know the goals that are meaningful they just do take a lot of time it would be nice if they came fast but mostly they don't and mostly you have to uh, really slog toward them and it's worth it but it's very frustrating and what you often hear is, you know, sort of the mantra, like, well, just be patient, just, you know, and it, and it often sort of equates to like, you know, just sit back, good things will happen, just, you know, don't worry about it. And frankly, uh, I'm too type A for that. I can't stand it. I want something more proactive. And that's where strategic patience comes in. Because I understand you got to be patient. You got to, you know, as like a life lesson, we have to make our peace with it. But that doesn't mean that we have to be passive and wish and hope. To me, what it means is that strategic patience is about creating a hypothesis it's about testing that hypothesis. It's monitoring things to see if you're moving in the right direction, adjusting if you need to, and oftentimes actually just just continuing to do the work. It, it can be very hard and very disconcerting because there often is a really long gap in between starting an endeavor and actually getting the feedback that you are that you are doing it right, that you are moving in the right direction. And that is the gulf where a lot of people drop out and they quit. But I would like to find a way, and what I really strove to do in the long game was to create 
something, a framework, ideas that can help talented people to persevere when it's the right move and when they need to mm. so that they actually can get to the other side and get the success that they deserve. I used to be notorious when it came to creating certain content, slow to do that. And in a lot of that, for me, if I'm being honest, was, well, you know, other people are doing that. And, you know, do we need one more person doing that? And I've, I've gotten past that. But I, I was fascinated by your take and convicted a little bit, too. You know, the people who, as you put it, I think, um, have these experiences gain this expertise and then pull the ladder up, you know, so, so others, you know, don't get access to that information, this idea of information hoarding, talk about your hatred for that as well. We, we're starting with the things that Dory hates here. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's add bell peppers to the list because I okay. really have a problem with them. Uh, <laughs> but above and beyond the bell peppers, information hoarding definitely is high up on the list. Mm. I in the long game, I tell the story about meeting this woman once and she was she was she actually still is a very mm. successful artist. And you know, the the kind that is like publicly prominent. She's always getting these commissions. She's speaking at big conferences. Mm. And I was, frankly, I was just really impressed with how she had built her brand. I'm always curious about that. And so mm. I tried to engage her in a conversation. I was asking her like, well, you know, like break it down for me. Like how, how did you break through? Like, what was that process like? How did you first get noticed? Like, how did you do it? And she, she just sort of smiled. She's like, mm, just do good work. And I just wanted to punch her. I'm like, you know, that's not true. And I know that's not true. I mean, of course, duh. Yes, you have to do good work. But yeah. I think every one of us knows artists or, you know, name your field that are very good, that are incredibly talented, where you say, mm. you know what, that actor could be on Broadway, that artist mm. could be in a gallery show and not on the walls of the local coffee shop, but they're not. And that mm. woman was, and she was just essentially refusing to answer the question or refusing to engage on sharing information about what it actually took. And I, I find that so offensive and so unhelpful because... You, pulling up the ladder is um, it's just such a form of scarcity mentality. Oh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I broke the code, but I'm not going to let anybody else do it. I, right. I really hate it. I, I think that if we want to create the, the sort of world we want to live in, we need to share information freely. We need to realize that somebody else's success does not jeopardize our own. And mm -hmm. so I've really striven with my books to try to break down and reverse engineer the processes by which people have been able to accomplish their goals. I mean, in Stand Out, it's a book about how do you become a recognized expert in your field. In Entrepreneurial You, it's about how do you successfully create multiple revenue streams in your business. But mm. whatever it is, I really wanted to, to try to show people here is what it takes. It, you know, it's, it's, it's when we hear about people in the public sphere, it's usually because they're already successful. And the story of how they got successful usually mm. does not get told. And that is the piece where I really wanted to, to dig in and, and fill in the gaps. You're very good at breaking that down. And, and to your example, it's, it's like when people ask me, you know, what does it take to have a successful podcast? And I get that look when my answer is, well, just be consistent. <laughs> you know? Just do it consistently week after week. Or when Steve Martin in the book Born Standing Up says, be so good they can't ignore you. <laughs> it's like, well, there's more to it than that. Give me, give me, some, give me some tips. Give me some stuff. Well, that's right. Yes, and. <laughs> yes, and. That's right. I agree with you when you say that uh, for many of us, our, our jam-packed calendars are, are, and I'm quoting here, a prison of our own making. 
What are some practical tools, Dory, that we can leverage to escape, if you will? Yeah, you know what you're referring to, of course, Jeff, is when when you you know say to most people, you know, oh, you're busy. I mean, of course, people will be like, yeah, I'm so busy, and we know why, or we you know we think we know why, and and. It's not wrong. Um, we mm. all have too many emails. We all have too many meetings. <laughs> that is true. Um, mm. The part that is sometimes a little bit more hidden or pernicious is that it's also true that our culture, I think, valorizes busyness in an unhealthy mm. way. And in fact, there's been research done by Sylvia Beletza of Columbia Business School talking about this phenomenon that in most Western cultures, certainly in American culture, busyness actually is viewed as a form of status. And mm. so even when we say, oh, I'd love to be less busy. Oh, I wish I had more time. We often subconsciously are making choices to fill up those moments of time because it enables us sometimes to not have to ask difficult questions that we might not know the answer to, and mm. often because it makes us feel needed or it makes us feel important. And dealing with that is, is kind of an, uh, an essential first building block when it comes to solving the problem that we claim that we want to solve. But when you're asking about specific things that we can do, I've written about this fairly extensively for the Harvard Business Review about mm. these questions of like, how do you say no? Because the, oftentimes there are activities where we, we know we should say no. We kind of want to mm. say no, but it's very hard to know how to do it. You know, we worry, oh gosh, I'm going to offend this person or oh, it's just easier to say yes. And we we blow a lot of our time that way. It's uh, it's really un unfortunate. Mm. You know, and, and to your point, I, I think what I've learned over the years is we tend to default to yes. And then if we say no, we, we feel like we have to defend that no to the other person. Yeah. As you were talking about, it's not a complete sentence for some reason. But I've I've tried to practice defaulting to no. And that if I'm going to say yes, then I've got to defend that yes to myself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, it ties in with a principle that I talk about in the long game, popularized by, by Derek Sivers. He actually, uh, the mm -hmm. entrepreneur and author Derek Sivers, who famously borrowed an adage from one of his friends, which is, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And right. so meaning, you know, where we get in trouble, most of us, you know, if something is like a terrible offer, you know, we're pretty good at saying no to that. Uh, and if it's a great offer, we're pretty good at saying yes. The main issue is that we often get in trouble with the middling offers where it's like, well, mm. you know, I mean, I don't really want to do it, but oh, you know, maybe maybe someone important will be there. Or, oh, well, it's a chance to see my friend or, you know, whatever the justification is, mm. you know, and that would probably be the five or the six or the seven on the list. And, you know, as Derek Sivers frames it, and I think it really is helpful, if you are busy and if you want to protect your time, unless it's a nine or even a 10, don't mm. say yes. Well, over the years, uh, I know I've struggled not with achieving goals, but with sometimes identifying the goals that I should be setting in the first place. Talk about some of the frameworks uh, that you w walk through for pushing through this and, and why we should, and in fact, I used this in a conversation this morning, optimize for interesting. I love that. Yeah, thank you so much. So one of one of the elements that I go into depth in in the long game is this question of optimizing for interesting. Because, you know, we certainly hear a lot in our culture about finding your passion and <laughs> uh and enlisting that. And I mean, you know, that's great, right? If you have a passion, 
you know, go for it, you know, fulfill mm. it. But but a big problem is that for a lot of people, they are not necessarily even sure what their passion is. You know, mm. it can be a complicated thing to figure out. Maybe you've been working so hard and so long, you just, you know, you don't even know. And so many times if that is the frame, people feel like, oh, well, if I don't know what my passion is, I guess I can't do anything. I guess I'll just keep, <laughs> you know, being, you know, working at this kind of boring job until until mm. passion strikes me, which <laughs> is not the way to, to figure things out. Instead, I suggest optimizing for interesting because you might not know what your passion is, but pretty much everybody knows what they find interesting, at least interesting enough where you say, well, you know, yeah, actually, I would like to read a book about that, or I would mm -hmm. like to see a documentary to learn more about that, or, oh, you know, if I had a chance to do an informational interview to learn more about what it's like to do XYZ, that would be kind of cool. Well, great, do that mm -hmm. and keep going until you stop finding it interesting. And that, it's through action, is how we actually end up discovering more about what we really do care about and perhaps, in fact, a place where we can make our own unique contribution. See, I, I said this book was fantastic, and Dory's proving it with every every word that's coming out of her mouth. I love it. So so we're all pretty much familiar with this uh, idea. I think most of us are familiar with this idea of 20% time that, that Google popularized, setting aside a, a fifth of your time for new projects and ideas. And I know some some other companies that have begun to adopt that sort of mindset or thinking, but why is it important for us as individuals to set aside time for, for experimentation? Yeah. So one of the things that is so critical here is we need to recognize that no one ever is going to hand us time. <laughs> if we want time for something, we have to carve it out. We have to be very proactive and we have to fight to defend it. And once we realize that, that we are that we are on our own in the time battle, uh, I think it, it becomes easier to uh, to understand. So for Google, of course, with 20% time, their employees working on these kind of experimental projects have been able to invent some incredible things that have turned into lasting contributions and revenue drivers of Google. I mean, Google News is one, Gmail is another. But for all of us, you, you can appreciate the logic, right? That if we are, if we are in fact optimizing for the present, for the short term, the only thing that it makes sense for us to do is to keep working on what is generating revenue today. Mm -hmm. Now, that's nice, but what if the market changes? What if circumstances change? What if you lose your job? What if uh, the business model shifts? You're in a lot of trouble. So part of shifting to long-term thinking is understanding that today's environment is not necessarily going to be static, and we also need to plan for the future. Now, if you're spending 90% of your time planning for the future, uh, that's the wrong balance too, because you're you're not optimizing and harvesting for today. Mm. But if you spend twenty percent of your time, in many ways, it's the perfect number, right? Because mm -hmm. it is small enough that if it, if it turns out that your experimental venture or the thing that you're learning about, if it fails, it's not the end of the world. You know, twenty percent of your time, okay, it sucks, but but whatever. You haven't you haven't lost your shirt, but it's a big enough amount of time that if you actually are uh, regularly investing 20% of your time to, you know, let's say, learn more about artificial uh, intelligence and how it might impact your industry, or to learn more about, you know what, I, I think I want to write a book one day, so maybe mm. I can get started, or maybe I can uh, read a book about how to write a book proposal and get started mm. on a draft, or whatever it is. Over time, 20% time is enough 
that it actually adds up and you can actually get somewhere at the end of a few months or a year. Now, we're, we're, we're sort of beginning to head toward the direction of my next question. And in some ways, we, we, we've hit on some of this, but I want to go a little bit deeper. This idea of thinking in waves. Um, you mentioned getting stuck doing one thing. I, I know when I look back over my eight years and I think about myself, you know, I kind of admittedly got stuck being really good at doing a podcast. And I had other things I was doing that wasn't as front facing as that or as, as, as public as that. But I did kind of get into a bit of a, a trap, if I'm being honest. And, and some would argue, well, Jeff, you got a book coming out or you got a book that just came out. You could have done that maybe three years ago if you really wanted to. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. So talk about how the concept of, of thinking in waves kind of connects to this. So in the long game, I talk about thinking in waves as a concept for how we can think about the overall arc of our professional lives. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I do executive coaching and I've over the past five years, I've worked with more than 600 professionals who've gone through my recognized expert course and community. So I've gotten mm -hmm. a lot of longitudinal perspective and experience about some of the mm -hmm. places where people get stuck or, you know, where they where they run into some snags professionally. And one of the things that I've seen again and again it's not necessarily that people are doing the wrong things, right? They might in fact be doing the right things, but the trick is that they they keep doing the same right thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's really hard to yeah. succeed if you keep doing the same thing, but you're not shifting to doing some of the other things that you need to be doing. And mm. so, for instance, I, I lay out a framework with these four waves the first one is is learning because early on in your career or early on when you're sort of mastering a new industry it is a time of learning right you're you're meeting mm -hmm. pe people you're you're getting a sense of the office politics you're reading the classics in your field if you're if you're a podcaster it's you know just like learning by practicing like your first mm -hmm. episode's probably not going to be great you know you just you have to <laughs> you have to learn then where, you know, some people get stuck there, like all they keep doing is just like, oh, well, I'll take another class. I'll get another certification. I'll read another book. <laughs> exactly. You need to eventually start doing your own thing, you know, sh sharing your own ideas, creating your own IP. So, you know, we, we move into the sort of creating and sharing mode about, well, how do you get your own ideas out there so that it's visible and so that other people can discover you and what's unique about you? And then it's it's about connecting with others, uh, because if you're sharing your ideas and creating new things, that's wonderful. But you can't do it in a vacuum. You need to have a community around you that can help you refine mm. those ideas, that can help you amplify those ideas. And that's critical to shift into. And then finally, I call I call the last piece the reaping mode. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is like this is the good stuff, right? Like you've built up a <laughs> successful career, a good brand, a good reputation. Some people coast on that for the rest of their lives. And I mean, you know, God bless them. That's that's nice. But it is coasting. And as Marshall Goldsmith, the famed executive coach, likes to say, you can't be happy if your whole life is I used to be. And it, it, it can feel very hollow. Oh, I used to be the quarterback. I used to be the CEO. You need to actually shift back into learning mode to learn something new, to try something new so that you have something to continue to, to grow and to look forward to. And that's what my new book is all about called, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, man, absolutely. <laughs> well, you have, a, you have a chapter called Strategic Leverage. Talk about the various ways in which you use leverage to get more out of less. 
Yes. So in terms of, of strategic leverage, I am a really big fan uh, always of trying to say, all right, you know, can I do something once and then make it count 10 times? Or <laughs> can I can I find a way to, to do two things at once? You know, I mean, we, ha- we have 168 hours in the day. All of us do. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, you don't, you don't want to do stupid multitasking, which, you know, I define as the, the thing that, that newspapers are always telling us is the devil's work. You know, like, <laughs> oh, uh, you're, you're pretending to be on the conference call, but you're actually like checking your email or whatever. Right. Like, you know, that that doesn't work for anybody. Right. It's like, so what do you think of that, Jeff? And you're like, uh, uh, what, what was that question? <laughs> it's like, ah, busted. <laughs> so that is, to be clear, is not the multitasking I'm talking about. Yeah. But I think that actually some small decisions can make a really big difference. So I am a big fan. This is a, I will note in advance, this is a wicked, tedious process. But twice now, twice, in, once in 2018 and once in 2020, I undertook a month-long time tracking experiment so I could really understand at a granular level where my time went. And what I learned actually in both instances is that I was able to get about close to 30% more time in my week. Like, whoa, 30% more time in your week by strategic multitasking. And what I mean by this is, okay, 30% more time. Clearly, I'm not manufacturing hours, but when I was <laughs> tracking time, uh, I would count I would count a particular block of time twice if I was doing two things and I legitimately could do them equally well. So for instance, mm. if I was working out at the gym and listening to a professional development book or a professional development podcast while I was doing it, I would count mm-hmm. it as exercise and as professional development. Or you could do the same thing. You're you're having dinner with a friend. Well, that's great because you're having dinner, which you need to do anyway, and you're visiting with a friend, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it's just thinking about, well, where can I do this with people? Or can I can I be learning? Can I be doing something while it's happening? You know, maybe mm-hmm. you're in a cab ride to the airport and you decide to call your granny. You know, all all of these <laughs> are the things where it's a, it's a small choice, right? Am I listening to Top 40 Radio or am I calling someone that's important to me? But it can actually mm-hmm. help in a legitimate way, build you more time in your week. That is so true. I I just remember when I realized the value turning my commute into what Zig Ziglar, I think, called Automobile University and and listening to podcasts and listening to audiobooks where I used to just listen to music all the time and entertain myself. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a time and a place for that. But when I started leveraging that time in in those, those new ways, that's when I saw my career start to change for the better and my growth and development just began to skyrocket after that yeah i mean your your ability to uh to wow people at karaoke bars probably declined <laughs> but you know there's trade-offs in life it's <laughs> true i didn't win any more billy joel sound alike contests after that i won one but i didn't win any more after that um something that that dory is particularly gifted at and and, and this is evidenced in, in in a lot of ways but one of them is that a lot of the guests i've had on this show have been introduced to me by dory and that is that is networking. Of course, that's critical to this process. And you make a distinction in the book, Dory, between short-term networking and long-term relationship building. Can can you unpack that and the differences? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, short-term networking, what I what I will call transactional networking, is frankly, it's the kind that number one 
most people envision, I think, when you hear the word networking. And it is mm -hmm. also simultaneously what gives networking a bad name because it is it's all about it's all about getting something. You know, it's this kind of, you know, predator on the loose in the chamber of commerce mixer wanting something from you. And <laughs> You know, I mean, nobody likes to be the target of that, but but also, mm. frankly, nobody likes to do that. And uh, Francesca Gino from Harvard Business School has done some really interesting research around this. Of the people who say that they hate networking, really, what it what it boils down to, if you if you unpack what they're talking about. It's not that like, oh, I hate to make friends. Like, I don't I don't think there's probably anybody, you know, aside mm. from uh, a real, you know, Ted Kaczynski type that's right. like, oh, I hate friends. What they <laughs> hate is the idea of using people. And mm. I think, frankly, that makes sense. Uh, sure. Nobody likes to, to use people. The issue is that they think that that's all networking is. Mm. And I think it's really important to push back on that formulation. And that's why in the long game, I actually share a rule, which is a rule that I have for myself. And, and you know, I, I would dare to propose it for other people as well, <laughs> which is no asks for a year. That if you meet mm. someone, if you're re really legitimately trying to build a relationship with them, that you should not ask them for anything within that first year. Now, obviously, you can ask them to hang out with you. That's the whole point of <laughs> making friends. Mm. Or you can ask yeah. them, you know, like the basic, oh, hey, Jeff, I like that microphone. What kind of microphone is that? You know, but I'm mm. talking about sensitive asks, asks that require right. political capital. Don't go there because if you go there... It, I mean, it's just telegraphing to them that you are using them. I probably am on the other extreme of, of waiting a little too long. Sometimes I'm accused of that. <laughs> because typically, uh, of, uh, with few exceptions of the guests that have been on my show over the years, all I ever ask them to do, if anything, is be on my show. Let me interview you, you know, and talk about what you're working on. I think that's one of those benign type of asks that you're talking about, but yes. I hadn't, hadn't really asked for uh, of much else. And so when I began asking for endorsements, obviously they need to see the book first and all that, but I got all yeses. I, I didn't get a single, well, I got one no, and that was just because that person was working on a book and had deadlines and didn't have time to read another one. Yeah. But every, every other person was a yes. And I was just blown away by that. Um, and for me, it had been eight years of not asking before wow. or seven years of not asking. So maybe I waited a little too long in some cases. That's right. That's right. Well, it's, <laughs> it's an important lesson that, that people, people really do want to help if, and you know, this is the important part, if you've created the kind of context and the kind of relationship where they understand that your motives are genuine, which I think is, is clearly the case with you, Jeff. Mm. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's been fascinating to see you make the pivots that you have. I know that there was, for a long time, time for money type of scenarios, and, and those are all great too, but a lot of speaking, a lot of traveling, and you, you wanted to make a pivot at some point, and, and, and you put more into your online offerings there, and it's been wonderful to see that flourish. But something, I don't know if you get asked about this often, but, but the, the other things that fascinate me are the fact that you've won a Grammy for for producing a jazz album or co-producing, I guess. And and I didn't know this. I learned this when I when I got your book, that you're also a stand-up comic. I mean, let, let's let's talk about those two areas of interest for just a bit. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, one of the things that I was really excited to talk about in the long game, because I, I think it is important, is mm. if we are really going to have a meaningful conversation about our professional lives, we have to integrate our personal lives into it. I mean, we, mm. if we're crafting a plan, 
we need to not just be putting blinders on and saying, well, you know, manager to, to director to VP to SVP. <laughs> like, you know, that's that's great, but that can't be everything. And <laughs> if we want to keep keep ourselves interesting to ourselves, uh, we mm. need to think about more. And and this is actually, frankly, where 20% time can become really valuable because it doesn't have to necessarily be spent on a professional uh, you know, a, a quote unquote professionally adjacent topic. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. And so one of the things that in addition to uh, the the work that I did, uh, as you mentioned, as uh, as a producer of a jazz album that was fortunate enough to win two Grammys uh, mm. or, you know, the stand up comedy that I've done. But I also have been really invested in the past five years in musical theater. And mm. so I decided really as part of my 20% time that that would be my area of focus. And so in the past five years, I have allocated quite a bit of time, frankly, to applying for and then being accepted to and then going through and completing uh, a two year program, a very hard to get into program that, that BMI, the music publishing company, runs uh, as a training program for musical theater and mm. uh, completing an entire libretto and uh, and and lyrics for for a musical, which uh, wow. which is, is now done. And uh, my collaborator and I are, are working on getting it produced. That's fantastic. Now that you mentioned that, I do remember seeing uh, conversations uh, around that on LinkedIn or, or social media somewhere. I've got a nephew who is about to graduate college who is working on writing his first musical, has taken a huge interest in it over the years. And you would probably be surprised to learn. I don't know if I've ever shared this on the show, but I got my start in musicals as a French horn player. And so I did a lot of pit orchestra work starting Incredible. in the eighth grade, actually. <laughs> uh, a lot of community theater on up through high school. When I was 16... There was this thing that the local community theater did called Young Artist Spotlight, where they did this summer run where the entire cast was 18 and younger. And my band director thought it would be really, really cool if the musical director was also under 18. And so at 16 oh, wow. years of age, I served as the musical director on the unsinkable Molly Brown. And it was one of the Unbelievable. most fun things I've ever done in my entire life. Oh, that's really cool, Jeff. That's some street cred, man. <laughs> yes. With you especially, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, it makes me sad because there's uh, there was a revival of the unsinkable Molly Brown that was happening in New York uh, mm. starring Beth Malone, who's a very talented Broadway actress. And uh, it got cut. I did not get to see it because it got cut short by COVID. Oh, but COVID. Uh, yeah, cool show. Well, let me let me finish by just asking about uh, sort of a combination of questions here, two, twofold. Talk to me briefly about how books have impacted you in your career. I know authors love to read, or most of them do, and that's a part of the writing process, I think, for any good author. So talk about how books have impacted you and maybe a book or two that you've read in the not-too-distant past that uh, you recommend. Yeah. So books have been very influential to me, mostly because I, for real, did not know anything about how to run a business when I was first starting a business. So, you know, I, I have a undergraduate degree in philosophy. I have a master's degree in theology. And mm. I literally have never even worked in a corporation. I worked for a newspaper. <laughs> I worked for political campaigns. I worked at a nonprofit. Those were the only like actual jobs, you know, mm. I had besides internships and things. So I had I had scant 
business experience. And so I knew it was an uphill battle for me to figure out how to create a consulting business. Mm. And I decided that I was going to try to educate myself. And so there was about a year where I knew that I was going to start my own business, but I was still working as uh, the executive director of a nonprofit. Mm. And I took that year as a time to do really intensive reading and and research to try to understand you know what what is business how do you run a business and so i was i was reading everything i mean i think back to that time I was checking out a stack of books every week and taking them home and reading them. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, things, things that were, that were classics in, in different ways. I mean, I was really just trying mm. to work through the canon as it were. So I think right. about the E-Myth by Michael Gerber, which mm. I thought was really terrific. Uh, my, my now friend, Keith Ferrazzi, uh, and Never Eat Alone was uh, very mm. influential to me. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, I read Jim Collins, uh, I'd read, you know, Dan Pink's books, but but those those were some of the things that were very helpful to me as I was piecing together what this world was that I was entering. Mm. Well, I highly recommend uh, Dory's latest book, and I recommend all the previous ones, too. Again, we've had her on the show to discuss all but one of them, and I'll link to each of those interviews and the books, the canon, uh, uh, the Dory canon uh, in the show notes for sure. It's called The Long Game. How to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. Dory, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing yet another book. Definitely worth reading, and I'm looking forward to getting it in more hands. Jeff, I appreciate it so much. It's always a joy to, to talk to you and to hear your questions, which you know are, are actually informed by the book. You know, It's clear that you really take the time <laughs> with each of these interviews, which is, which is amazing. And I will just mention too, for any of your listeners that are interested in digging more into the question, that I do have a free resource, which is the Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment. Oh, yes, and folks yes. can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I meant to and forgot. So thank you for picking up where I dropped the ball. Thank you again, Dory. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff, and take care. At the show notes page for this episode, you'll find several resources, including how to connect with Dory online, a link to the book we talked about, the books and authors she recommended, and her two previous interviews here on the podcast. All of that and more at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 389 for episode 389. I'm speaking at LinkedIn later this week to talk about how to make the most of the books you read, developing a reading culture within your organization, as well as personal and professional development in general. If you'd like to add yourself to that list or want to find out more about virtual and in-person workshops for your organization, simply write contact at readtoleadbook.com. That's contact at readtoleadbook.com. And don't forget that readtoleadbook.com is where you go right now to get 50% off bulk orders of 20 books or more. Choose Baker Publishing as your vendor and use Read to Lead as your discount code to get 50% off your order. Readtoleadbook.com. That does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.